You are now listening to Out of the Blank. 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 Sure, I've got my coffee, so... Well, welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Jason. Hello. Jason. Hey, man. How's it going? It's going, man. Tell me a little bit about yourself, brother. Well, uh, JJ Whitehead, I'm originally from uh, Eastern Canada, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a stand-up comic, and I live down here in L.A. right now during this uh, ugly pandemic. I have... Really big question that I've been waiting to ask a stand-up comic for a long time. Does it feel weird saying that, like saying you're a stand-up comic? Because I know it's got to like immediately someone's going to be like, "Hey, tell me a funny joke or what makes you a comedian." So it's like it really okay, yeah, it really does. It really does on many levels because I actually I lived in Britain, so all of my stand-up career was built in Britain. I moved to Britain in the in 1999, and then I became a comedian. Um, I only moved here to LA four years ago. So as a Canadian in Britain, um, I got a good look at the British comedy scene, obviously, um, and got to know it really well. And there's a power in Europe, in all of Europe, to be a live performer. Um, I don't know if it's because their culture, is a, it's an indoor culture. You know, their weather's not as good, I guess, as yeah. maybe elements of North America. But they love uh, stand-up comedy in a very different way. They respect it as an art form in more ways than I see in America. I mean, I'm not going to be too down on America, but but in America, saying that you're a stand-up comedian isn't as appealing a thing because a lot of people, a lot of Americans will look at you and go, well... Hang on, you've not- heard of the stamp of approval. America gives you the stamp of cancel. That's what's <laughs> happening. Yeah, yeah, they're all... Yeah, so it's a, it's a different... If it, it's a different playbook. It's a... Uh, in America. So you have to be able to weather that. There's a lot. And I, now that I live in Hollywood as well, I've, I meet, you have a bill of 10 comics. I mean, all great people, but people can call themselves comics without kind of doing the road work and, you know, not to be, not to be bitter of like, you can't just stand on stage and call yourself a comedian now, but you start to see elements of that when you move to LA, because in LA, you'll have a bill of say 12 people each doing 10 minutes because they shorten your time when you come to LA and you're like, it's a showcase town. They'll fire you on stage and you're, you're in the back with these other 11 performers and you realize, Oh, four of them are comedians. Three of them are radio personalities. You know, three of them are actors who want to broaden their range, you know, whose managers told them like learn to talk in front of people. So there's a whole variation, you know, there's even people jumping up on stage who just, you know, just, want the thrill of doing it and then they'll walk away so you got a great variety a a great big background of people who can call themselves stand-ups so it loses its uh it loses its power a little bit when you when you tell somebody you're a stand-up and it's not like that in britain in britain tell somebody you're a stand-up they're they're excited you know uh so it's the title has different meaning but you know the career has different meaning because i think americans american stand-ups have day jobs for longer you know and they're they're uh they're paid less for longer. Whereas in uh, Europe, there's a route to being a professional performer um, once you have a few couple years experience, you know. 
Well, just performance in general. I mean, if we talk about Hollywood, the stereotypical thing is that's the place to get big. That's when you move there. You're like, I fucking made it. I, this is my life now. I'm going to, you know, never have to work another day in my life. I get to perform and make all the money in the world. An interesting fact, the Hollywood sign where everybody takes them beautiful selfies you see on Instagram. The H was rebuilt twice by Hugh Hefner. I mean, come on now. I mean, that just, let alone just in that idea, I want to move to the place. But when it comes to <laughs> right, because they what? Because they have their priorities, right? When it becomes when it comes to rebuilding structures, <laughs> they're gonna. I, I love that you point that out. There's a huge homeless problem here, but at least you, they got that H working. At least they well, fixed that H up you, there. You look. And let I me tell you, there, it is, it's just up there. I, and, I, uh, I feel like with all the empty homes, we could definitely fix the homeless population, just letting them live there, put them on this rehab thing. But I like to look at the bright side of life, and it doesn't look like anybody's given that much of a shit to change the homeless population. So I'm yeah. like, guys, this sign is perfect. It's beautiful. Let me tell you. Yeah, the fucker should have gone like, we've, we've, we've uh, re re-propped the H, but... You know, for those of you who want to know if we're doing sustainability, we've also got three homeless people decked out and living in uh, three three homeless dudes living in the H comfortably. And uh, if she comes down again, they're taking care of it. We've, it's uh, a small it's them. a small battle, but we won it. Look, you're sitting on the side of the curb with no food or no shelter. You get to look at that beautiful Hollywood sign. Makes your life a little bit better, considering you're sleeping on the streets. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, we could all do a little bit more good. <laughs> what would you consider um like when you started comedy for instance what would you consider your stylings to be like it seems like everybody pulls from something when they're doing the performance or something you have certain mannerisms to start uh, off and you yeah eventually... well yeah well this take this will take you right back to to britain like i said i did my formative years in britain so i started because a lot of people still ask because a lot of because i done a did a canadian tv special um you know like about uh 10 years into my career or whatever um, so a lot of people, and I'm Canadian, so a lot of people assume I came out of Canada, uh, which I did not. I, when I moved to Britain, I, I always wanted to be a comedian, but I, I wasn't even aware. This is how ignorant I was. I was North American ignorant of like, wow, there's a whole, uh, there's a, there's a whole uh, comedy community over there. There's a, there's a whole fabric of comedy over there. You know, you start to discover things like Billy Connolly. Who I consider the, who I now consider the godfather of comedy. Who I wasn't aware of his talents until I immersed myself in Scotland. Scotland was the first place I moved to, and you know I was whatever 20, 23 or twenty two, and uh, maybe even twenty one. Jeez, I was, but I was full of Saturday Night Live and Jerry Seinfeld, and you know American. I was full of American and Canadian comedy. Obviously, I grew up on Club Fifty Four and Just for Laughs TV shows. So I had all that in my mind, and it wasn't until I arrived in uh, Britain that I truly got to know, like beyond the Eddie Izzard, that was about the extent that we had been introduced to in North America, we're given Eddie Izzard, and then, uh, you know, and then just told Britain has comedy thing going on. So when you discover it, uh, when you discover Billy Connolly, and you're a young comic, I was a little bit of a storyteller, and I still am, and I would have to say, it's the style of the of the long form storytellers like the British uh, that are born out of Billy Connolly's uh, that I really that really took hold. So so you know like Eddie Murphy got the engine going. Eddie Murphy got the engine going and got me all inspired and stuff. Uh, but then when I stumbled uh, into this comedy community in Britain, I was like, oh wow, I'm gonna be a story like because Eddie Murphy was a storyteller as well. Yeah. So 
So I took all that influence. And then when I saw people like Billy Connolly in Britain, and you also see, you also get to see uh, longer form comedy in terms of like doing the Edinburgh Comedy Festival and doing shows around Britain. It's all behind doing an hour long show, you know, one hour stand up show, snippets of your life, you know, uh, you learn how to share something of yourself on stage. Whereas, not that it's a bad thing, but here in Hollywood or American comedy, it becomes a 10 minute commercial for who you are or a seven minute commercial yeah. can do anyway. If you don't, you know, if you don't want to be a longer form comedian, you can see it as a stepping stone in America and go, all I need is to, to build that seven minute comedy routine that will show the executive that I can be the quirky friend or the wacky next door neighbor or whatever in the sitcom. So it's more stepping stony. Um, if, if that makes any sense. So as soon as the British, as soon as British comedy gets on, gets into your veins and you're like, all right, I'm going to do an hour long show in Edinburgh. I'm going to go this direction. Um, then you'll well, like find we're saying it though, it's a, it's a different culture there too. A lot of them, like you can say a certain thing or call out something obvious. That's like maybe an issue like stereotypes or generalizations. I, that's a lot of what comedy kind of is a little bit too, unless you're really talking about yourself, but like, I started noticing like every comedian that comes on stage or, you know, you see a special or something, it's jokes about their own self in life because it's like playing it safe a little bit. And like the only one I can really recommend that I've seen like probably 50 times just in the past week is Sticks and Stones by Dave Chappelle. He's legit calling out everything that a lot of people would be afraid to. And it's just like, it really sucks that like comedy has gotten to this point. Like I had somebody that was a stand-up comic tell me that comedy has, um, it should never punch down. It should always punch up. I'm like, but it's funny yeah. when it punches down too, because you know, the person's not joking, but it's gotten to a point where like somebody says something like us saying something about the homeless population. People are like, Hey, my cousin's homeless. Well, you should have gave him a home. Yeah. Like it's something like that. Well, there's, yeah. And there's an element. I mean, I've read some interesting articles about that too. I mean, I loved Dave Chappelle's special. Uh, one thing that made me angry about about the uh, the aftermath of Dave Chappelle's special was the people who would refute Dave Chappelle's special without even watching it. Yeah, just 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 towing the line, towing the line of like, well, fuck him. He's a he's whatever. He's a transphobic, uh, homophobic asshole or whatever. And you're like, did you watch what he expressed? And because he he offers because you can offer criticism while saying that you love these people, you know, you can offer criticism through love. That's part of being a comedian is to live in that gray area and go, look, I love this, but uh, I'm going to make fun of this. You know, it's, it, you know, so people have to watch, like, I don't know, in Britain, when people are doing that, a British audience doesn't feel that, uh, that they need to be your friend. They feel like, oh, you're entertaining us. Oh, I disagree with that. And I agree with that. And then sometimes, yeah, in America, you run into trouble because you'll find yourself performing and you can see some people in the audience sometimes go, well, why aren't you saying everything that I agree with? You know, I can't, I can't find this funny unless I, I can see myself being your friend and agreeing with everything. And that can be, that can be hard. Luckily, it's, it's not all the time, but you know, every now and then, every time you go on stage, you can be wary of like, all right, this could be a comedy show or this could be a disagreement so let's see let's see where we go yeah and like if you look at like you mentioned ireland before like that's a crazy culture in itself i mean craig ferguson so many of his jokes i mean they involve a word that you can't say today that'll pucker up everybody's butthole and that's the c word he uses that like it's nothing because it's nothing over there i've gotten into a podcast with a dude that drops like 50 of them in like a minute i'm like hey 
hey, that's a that that word makes me pucker up a little bit like whoa now somebody who's listening is gonna get like you know that evil eye look going on but like yeah it's a it's a descriptor in uh you know in britain you can use it to cause like me and friends will use it between ourselves all the time i mean it can it all it's all in tone you have to deconstruct it for yourself whether or not somebody's calling you this thing out of out of aggression or not but Commonly in Britain, we can use it to describe a friend, you know, yeah. you go like, hey, this is Jack. He's a good cunt. You'll enjoy hanging out with him. That's a casual throwaway term in Britain, whereas people, other people in other cultures can just cling on to that and go, well, you're obviously an evil person if you've got that word in your vocabulary. Have you found that a lot of your jokes um, from that you would use in the UK or use in a different place had yet to translate them a little bit to get over here, you know, just so people can kind of respond to it better? It seems like everyone's kind of picking apart what they want to hear, taking what they want, kind of like how we mentioned him before with like, all I heard was him say this. And then I, 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 I kind of condemn him for this. It's like, it seems like we're really just listening to the parts we want to hear. I've listened to sticks and stones so many times where I'm like listening to the whole joke, things that I'm missing. I'm picking up things that I'm missing. I'm like, Oh my God, wait a minute. I laughed at this and I realized he's making fun of the audience. And it's true. We're just completely mindless picking out certain key parts. Yeah, we live in a soundbite culture. Um, and that's how you can easily mis mislead people as well. People have all learned to take a soundbite of what, of what they know. I feel It feels too like some people who take these soundbites, they know that the complete piece is not offensive. But they know that if they cut out this 30 or 40 second chunk of it, they can portray it, portray it as being as offensive as they want. Um, and that's the trickery of the last decade, isn't it? Everybody's in control of their own editing and you get filled. You have to remember to be skeptical of everything that you, that you see on the internet. I mean, we have a joke internationally. There's a joke internationally of like, if you see something on American news, you have to try to look it up on British or Canadian news to see if it's true. And that is becoming more and more true all the time because things catch fire in America and people get appalled at these at, at a snippet of something and they don't they don't uh, do the research or you know it's unfortunate that we have to do research when it's delivered to us like this, but it's given to us in such sound bites that sometimes we fail to see that that it can be misleading, you know, or that we haven't seen that we've seen the fight but we haven't seen the instigation kind of thing or sometimes you see the instigation but you don't well, see the fight you know? it's so easy to see something and you just want to get upset about it I, I look at that as a quick shot to fame it seems like if somebody can put up a blog and then some person can see that and then run with it and start kind of can, like i just literally this morning saw 50 something posts off this one hashtag that was all trying to cancel duncan trussell and i'm like what the fuck? Like the nicest dude that I would consider, at least from what I've heard. And everyone's like, he's a fake cult leader. I'm like, but that's going to inspire followers. And then I even saw a hashtag where a dude was like, hey, free Bill Cosby. I'm like, he's not innocent. And the guy's like, no, he's innocent. I'm like, you're blinded by truth right now. He literally admitted to what he did, but you don't want to forgive him and you don't want to help him work past that. You just want to deny everything. I'm like, you're living in a fucking dream. Like this isn't video games. Yeah, there's a lot of that happening too. I mean, I'd have to, I'm not entirely familiar with Duncan Trussell, but I, but I did clue into something that you said there, which I think is another problem, which is that if people, people understand funneling off uh, views and stuff, they've stopped thinking of something as, as bad, you know, good and bad. Like when Twitter, for example, when Twitter started, 
whatever, I'm going to say 10 something years ago, when it, when it started, everybody was so complimentary. Everybody was so, I don't believe you. I like what you did. I like what you said. I'm going to forward it to everybody. I'm going to retweet what you said because it was sweet or nice or funny. I'm going to retweet it so that everybody can see and hopefully you can build followers. And that used to be the instinct. There's no building followers through that stuff anymore because that doesn't exist because now it's evolved into, I don't like what you said. I'm going to retweet it to my followers so that they get you. And it's just become this pile on garbage you know, everybody's angry about something system. Unless, I mean, I'm sure you can, you can cultivate it to be better, but it takes a lot to try to weed out everybody who's, you know, Twitter. I blame the media, they gave Twitter credit. As soon as the media started propping up, you know, if, as soon as you've got these news reporters who used to have journalistic integrity and they'll stand there and they give you the news story, but then instead of us getting to know journalists in the field, they'll flash to so-and-so said on Twitter, and this got, you know, 400 likes, so it's valid. And, and it's not, it's, it's the equivalent of like, if we were still in the eighties, it would be the equivalent of a news reporter there going, here's the news, but let's see what Joe at the gas station thinks. And then flash it over to go Joe at the gas station and go, ah, they get all fuck off. <laughs> oh, well that's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just this shouting match. It's ridiculous. I mean, I don't, and I honestly don't know how to clean it up. I don't know how you get rid of politics. I wish Twitter was just fun again of like jokes. and. I just fun. made a Twitter probably like a few months ago. So I'm coming at like, when you tell me that it was nice at one point, I look at you like you trying to tell me that we landed on the moon and it wasn't fake. I'm like, okay, sure. Um, but like, if you look at Twitter, <laughs> if you look at Twitter, for instance. Look, got, look at that. See, I've got a new, look at that. See? <laughs> See, look at that. I ran out of this one. And now, holy cow. I love got my two cups. Coffee. You're prepared. Look at yeah, you go. Um, but yeah, if you if you look at uh, Twitter, for instance, it seems like everybody went from wanting to be a celebrity to just wanting to start their own cult. Because it seems like that's all we care about is the followers. We just care about trying to get them to think a certain way. It's like everybody is literally leading their own cult. And we look, we missed out on the main option. If you want followers, homeless people, start your cult that way. Help them out. Do something <laughs> with them. Yeah. Oh, that was, yeah, I mean, do something for them regardless. Even a sandwich. Even, you don't even need even to be if, negative. Yeah, anything. Even if, the, even if they don't have social media and can't follow you back, which I'm going to go on a limb and guess that mostly they can't. It would be not, just help them out. First of but, all, uh, so, yeah, some of I, them have I, flip phones. I'm just saying some of them have flip phones and you don't even need that Twitter following. Please. They will literally really? follow you. That's what they will do. They will be outside of your house, like waiting when you come out on the porch, like the Pope, like I'm here to greet my people. They're out there like, yes, I, cheering for you. I used to say that in my standup at the birth of standup or at the birth of Twitter. I used to say at the birth of standup at the birth of Twitter. I used to say everybody's in the green room comparing how many followers they are, but I'd, I'd rather have real live flesh and blood ones. If I walk into a dressing room and somebody goes, I've got 400 followers now, I'll be like, yeah, fuck it. I got two dudes. They're hiding in a bush outside. <laughs> I'm a bit what, what, what matters more, a retweet or someone that is willing to kill for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. See, I, you know, I'll say this too. This might be the good form to say it. The hard thing too is that, uh, it was okay a couple of years ago to say, I don't want to use, I mean, we even did a piece on it on the Jim Jeffries show. We did a piece about clicktivism and, and, and this, and the false activism that exists, you know, and how people can get all righteous and tweet out, you know, whatever support rural, uh, support rural pigs or whatever, <laughs> free, free, free rural pigs. 
And if you don't jump on board now, then you're like, then you're against it. You know, then you're, you want rural pigs in cages or whatever. And two years ago, openly, a lot of us were like, look, I'm not going to be doing activism on my Twitter. I don't want to. If people come to my Twitter, I want them to see very little, I hate the president or I love the president and very little, everybody stand up for the social issue. I just want people to be able to escape and, and like see some jokes and, and relate a little bit. And, uh, and that goes away after a while. And I think like, I'm not alone in this. I almost feel guilty all of a sudden when your social media fills up with activism and, and you're one of these people who are, I'm like, I'm, it's not that I'm not into activism. It's just that I had a moral stance of my own, like, like three, four, five years ago, I've always had this moral stance of like, there's a right time for activism and I will speak up, but I don't want to rule my Twitter feed with this. I wanted to put jokes and just light, lighten moods on Twitter feed. And that's from a conflict now. You know, it's become a like, why did you do this? Or why, why didn't you, why didn't you say anything thing? about this? I got, you... I got some of that too. Somebody was upset with me that I didn't post something for something. I'm like, I'm not posting on any of that. Cause this is an escape. This is supposed to take, if I litter my, you know, social media feed, which is politics and everything, this Biden and all this type of stuff, then it's not giving you that escape. There's not going to be people that agree with it. The whole point is being open-minded. Yeah. And so I do, I do uh, long for, long for those days or for that because you because I feel like it can't address it every now and then I do get one of these messages I try to message them back privately and go look I'm all I'm all for it I'll stand for it I'll uh, you know I try to donate money every now and then I'll keep your cause in mind as well um, but it's just become hard it's become hard to play by other people's rules uh, when people people think that their rules for the internet are the same rules that everybody has to be going by and then they lash out at people who aren't playing by their rules and you know and there's just there's suburban moms who are like look i just i just want to tweet to the other moms that i'm that were picking up the kids at the soccer game at six we didn't we didn't want to jump into your you established 7 30 you established 7 30. yeah yeah man so i mean i'm all for that but it's yeah it's hard to con convey it sometimes it's hard to to say look i'm I'm sorry that my I'm sorry that my activism isn't the same as your activism, but I'm an ally, um, and I guess that's the problem. Sometimes is there's a quick jump to well, if your activism isn't the same as my activism, then you're the boogeyman, then you're the enemy, and then I'm gonna get points for now taking you down. And you're like, whoa, hey, easy, easy now. And then, but luckily, I've learned that the best thing is to just not engage and turn your computer off for a day and go away and then when you come back the next day they've usually found somebody else to attack for not being activisty enough that's what so. i've heard about like everyone's chasing fame but honestly fame looks like the worst thing possible like once you start getting a little bit there's always someone that's going to end up popping in out of that one out of ten that's like hey i'm going to take this guy down because i don't like something he said or i don't like this i'm like really kind of sucks yeah. nowadays you don't have anybody that just doesn't want to just move on like we have this amazing thing we sit there and swipe all day but as soon as we find something we don't like we want to light it up or blast it all over the place i'm like holy how shit you, yeah how do you retrain everybody man how do you retrain everybody to go wait till you find something that you like promote the things that you like but you know you see that in the psychology of i mean i hate to keep saying that it's american but i mean it's only been happening since i moved to america but the psychology here seems to be tear people down so that we're all even and as a guy who's moved here from other cultures, you know, even though sometimes they don't sound 
like I have, but I have. I've moved here from Britain. I grew up in Canada, and I just and I spent a lot of time in Australia, and New Zealand, touring. And I'm just like, you call it socialism if you want, but it's the but it's the ability to say we all should be even. Let's raise each other up, which is great. And it's had trouble permeating America because America is like America agrees with we should all be even part. But they don't agree on raising each other up. They they seem to frequently agree with tear everybody down so that we're all even. It's fucking I, social media, so dude. Weird, it's just it's a weird approach. It's literally I saw people that were like protesting and stuff just to get pictures, and then they were like, it's like donating. So like, I got this when you go into Home Goods and like you get something that's like maybe seven ninety eight or something. Like you want to donate that two did cents? Home? Did you say Home Goods? Home Goods. Home okay, Goods. Keep. Uh, wait. I was like, what? What put kind a of pin. Suburban, what put kind a, of suburban piggly wiggly you got going on? We got, we going to a little home goats. It's and, the uh, rural pigs, but put a pin in that because that is an awesome idea to sell a goat farm called Home Goats. <laughs> you get customized shaved yeah. goats and stuff. Are you kidding me? All right, hey but man, no, we got we got to figure out other income. You know, <laughs> home goods, Hard for time. instance, it's seven ninety eight for like I don't know some items or something. They go, you want to donate that two cents to like a charity? You donate, and then they grab a bell and they start ringing it, and then everyone in the place knows you've donated, but they don't know how much. I'm like, it's two fucking cents. It's like donating or doing something during the pandemic. People were delivering pizzas, but they were doing it, and I know for a fact they were just doing it to post on social media to get those compliments. I'm like, what the f like? Do we need the appeal or the applaud or just the love of everybody in the world? Like you look on social media for, but just go out in your neighborhood and do that shit. Yeah, precisely. Try to help your neighbor. I mean, you know, who knows? Swings and roundabouts. Hopefully things come back around and people start to realize that clicktivism is not the way forward and true activism is. But we'll see. I mean, to your point that you were going to mention the other day about, uh, people who attack because there's a there's an approach to attacking the people too like so when people have more followers like i i have a couple of friends here in la who are who are much more well known and i witness their the attacks on them all the time and it really is just to try to frame something they did or said in a way that will excite uh viewers that they'll target but they also hope that they can chip off some of the followers. So if my friend has 450,000 followers, he's a target because these little clickbaiters or whatever, they're, they try to make a living off of this because they know that I can make a living if I can, if I can piss off 100,000 of his followers or whatever by defaming them. So you see that move a lot as well, you know, if I can excite. So that's why they get attacked more than I don't know, more than uh, more than people with less followers or less of a social build because there's not as much power in it. You get a back and forth going with a with a blue check or a celebrity or something like that, you get it it all works for you. It doesn't work for them. And that's why it becomes hard. So like cuz some of my friends well, of course we had that on our show as well on the Jim Jeffrey show while we were all writing on the Jim Jeffrey show, we all had to be reminded frequently stop engaging, don't engage with with craziness, with the catfishing uh you know selective commentary because all it does is empower uh the the crazy the people who want to you know who who want to spread misinformation it only empowers them a little bit and that thus that is the internet it's so hard isn't dude. It? it's so hard when someone says something to you you just want to message back like they're right in front of you it's like the scene from jay and silent bob you just go to their house and beat the shit out of them 
Yeah, there you go. That's that's how you feel inside when when it's all happening. When it's when the misinformation happens, you know, and it and it happens frequently, and it and it happens can happen while you're asleep. You know, I can I woke up this morning and I just checked quickly to make sure I wasn't being hounded by anything because I was thinking, oh God, imagine if the first thing I jump on a podcast with you and you're like, hey. What's up with uh, six thirty this morning? You were uh, bombarded with hate mail, and uh, you haven't refuted it. So that's it why I DM'd you with the whole like, you know, check out the show first, so you see I'm not some like kid that's just gonna get you on the show to talk about. Did you see this or did you see that? Why'd you say this or why'd you say that? Like you don't know how hard it is to message random people every day, and then then they literally have to sit on it for like a month where they're thinking about it. Like who is this person? What did I post that they liked? What are they coming at me for i'm like it's not an attack i just want to talk to you that's it i just i i want a little bit of that communication because in america we don't have any of it it's through social media and that's like farting with through a window it's like nothing. i got i got a yeah i got one uh uh you're gonna hear dings probably on your end but i i because uh, i just received a message but i got one i got a, a weird attack about a month ago and uh uh, the person started sending me screen grabs of my, of me, of my public persona on the internet. So of course I'm a stand-up comedian and I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a TV writer. So so of course I've got a public Instagram and a, and a, a Facebook artist page and a Twitter. And, and this person reached out. I can't remember if it was on Insta, but uh, I think it was either Insta or Twitter. And then boom, they just started hitting me with photos of my of my own of my website and all this. It was almost like it was supposed to be threatening. It was almost like a, I know where you are. And I was just like, wrote him back politely. And I was like, yeah, dude, you're, you're supposed to. I, you need to be able to find me. I'm, a, I'm an online public stand-up comedian. I mean, holy cow. Why do you have pictures of me in the bathtub with a chihuahua? <laughs> why, well, see, why? now that would be threatening. If, if they could actually find pictures of what I get up to in my apartment, if it was me in the bathtub with my chihuahua, you know, uh, you know, in vinegar strokes, then I'd be worried. <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, it's just screen grabs of my actual life. And I think this guy was treating it like he was like he had a camera behind a tree. He'd be like, I've, I have found you. Yeah, yeah, you found me, man. I'm on the, we're all on the fucking internet. It's like going through the yellow pages and go, I've discovered him. <laughs> you know, it's just, but uh, everybody's got their own rules. Everybody's got their own victories too. I think this was a victory for him. I found your website and I'm sending you screen. What is he going to hold my. And now you're talking about him on a podcast. So now he's winning even more. Yeah. Now I'm going to get more. This is it. I'm just <laughs> on the opposite now. Right, JJ. <laughs> podcast. If I had to ask you, which do you prefer, being a stand-up comedian or being a writer on the Jim Jeffries show? Uh, well, I love both. In they're different jobs, aren't they? So, I mean, I love stand-up comedy. Is my first love, uh, without a doubt. So I love it. I mean, there's the British comedy circuit was amazing. From about any British com comedian will tell you, the British comedy circuit from about 2001 until 2011 was the best comedy circuit in the world and i mean if you look at if you just look at the layout of britain if you think about it a second um you can make it to another city in britain that has millions of people you know within hours you know manchester and leeds are only 40 minutes from each other manchester and liverpool are 40 minutes manchester to birmingham uh is like two hours 
Uh, Birmingham to London is another two hours. These are all cities of millions of people. So the British comedy circuit is pretty awesome. I mean, you can do, I was at one point when we lived in Manchester, uh, so three of us, three comedians, we all lived in Manchester. We were doing double ups between cities. You know, you could open a show in Manchester, close a show in Liverpool, you know, and be home at, to your place in Manchester. So, so the life on the British comedy circuit was pretty amazing for a good decade there. And, uh, and, and I love it very much. You know, there's nothing that beats being on stage. And I still love it here in America. I mean, I tour, so I'm touring with Jim Jeffries. When I open for him, he's got huge audiences. Um, and I mean, that's the sweet spot. That's where we want to be. I mean, even when I talk with them now, we're like, we, we, you know, it sucks that right now we're doing, you know, we're performing to cars and parking lots because it's the best we can do. I mean, it's everybody's tolerably satisfied with, okay, well, that's that's what we got to do now. We got to yeah. sit in a drive to, to watch a comedian, but that's the best. But, I, but then writing for the Jim Jeffrey show was different in the way that it inspired me. Like no other experience has because that's a, it's a day job, right? It was a five days a week. Well, it was a day job that go, would go into the night frequently, but you had to be like, I had to be at an office at 10 in the morning. And, uh, and I took to it. I like, cause I've waited my whole career for this kind of opportunity. So, um, it was, it was the, probably the most amazing three years of my life to, because I got to do both actually, because I was not only writing for the Jim Jeffrey show, but I'm also opening for Jim on the road. So when we, so we'd write all week. So I'd had to be in there every morning. Um, I was always early as well because I loved it. And the, and the great thing is every idea that you're inspired by, we're writing a 30 minute television show, mocking news elements and mocking social issues. Um, but stuff that winds up on the cutting room floor, you know, you can take into your, if you're a stand-up, you can take it and maybe work it towards your stand-up. And, and also frequently, you know, if our topics on the show are fixed, you know, say we are going to talk about drugs in sport and, and we are going to talk about uh, the hunting issue. And, uh, and then you're doing all your research and then you stumble through drugs on sport and you discover an interesting story or something, you know, it's not going to fit into the show. Then you're like, boom, there's some fodder that I can hopefully take into my standup. Uh, so it was just great. It was a great work. And I love working under pressure as well. I think every comedian, stand-up comedian, well, not everyone, because I do know stand-up comedians who get up at nine and do a day of work, you know, sit at their computer and stuff. But uh, I think most comedians, they need the ideas to come to them and they, and they love working to a deadline. They love being given a deadline because there's a million uh, ideas that comedians have had out there that they haven't carried to fruition because they don't have, because they're their own boss, you know? And so in this element, I had a boss and I had to have, you know, I had to have big writing pieces, big monologues and stuff and jokes done by a certain deadline. And, uh, you know, some entertainers need that in their life. You, know, you can be a little bit more like um, creative, too, when you're writing for a show rather than doing stand-up. You can let your jokes hit with a little bit less. Um, like, you can hit more well, stuff well, that you, you wouldn't want to talk about in the stand-up. Well, you can write for a visual gag as well. So that's new. And you can't do that in stand-up unless, unless maybe you're doing a one-man show in stand-up and you've got your Mac book or whatever and you got your projector and you can go hey this is uh here's me at summer camp in 2002 boom but but uh but in television yeah because you know that that box is going to show up over jim jeffries's shoulder so you know that you can write for a visual joke because then we have an arts department who can mock up like i actually there's a visual joke that's in my stand-up actually 
um, I'm not sure if I put it up online yet, but I did it. There's some clips on, on online of me opening for Jim Jeffries on his last special. And so I've put up a couple of them. Uh, but there's one about how scientists are hoaxers. I was just making fun of the Republican line of like that all scientists are tricksters, you know, trying to sow mistrust in your in society scientists is weirds me out anyway. But I would just agree. And for the show, we had an element of like, yeah, scientists are all tricksters. And I sarcastically wrote this piece of like, yeah, Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking didn't even have ALS. You know, he used to, when you, when you would turn your back, he would be up running out of his wheelchair. And, uh, and then when you turn back around, he'd sit back down, right? So I wrote a series of those. And then we had the art department had mocked up, they had mocked up Stephen Hawking uh, running out of the wheelchair, you know, in a, in a slow-mo out of the wheelchair. And it was a great little run uh, it was for the show because he's got Jonas Salk, you know, who he cured polio before he told everybody. He just liked watching people fall out of their wheelchairs. So a lot of nice, cruel jokes about how scientists can be manipulative. I love how you didn't even blink when I told you that one. But anyway, we had so we had the, the mock-up department mocking up all these things along the lines of Hawking doing a sprint. But when it came time for the show, unfortunately, there was a tragedy. Um, I'm gonna, I think the tragedy in this case was the shooting in New Zealand, for example. That happened in our run up to the air and we were like, okay, we have to cut a lot of the show because we, and we had to stay in the writer's room like overnight and, and write a piece that engaged, you know, New Zealand's response to, their, to, their, to the shooting. Um, and so because of that, a lot of this stuff hit the cutting room floor and I remember at the, mo at the time thinking, oh, the Stephen Hawking joke is so good. And the visual of Stephen Hawking jumping up out of his wheelchair to fool everybody because scientists are, are hoaxers uh, was so good. And I thought it was gone because in my mind, it was only a visual joke. It could only land if, if you could see that picture over Jim Jeffries' shoulder. But the weird thing is, as a couple weeks later, the joke having long gone from the show, I actually tried to do it in my stand-up and it worked. It worked a treat. I just sat on the chair and told everybody the story. And then I get up from the chair and run around pretending to be Stephen Hawking. And I was like, oh, I found it. I found a way to make it work as stand-up. So, so elements of that are nice when that comes to you and you're like, I didn't, I wouldn't even approach that as a, as a, as a stand-up joke. And then it becomes a piece. So, yeah, so, well, there's so, nice. so many things you probably could have developed through the show that was like, I'm so glad I could have this show because I can play this there because I can't say this on stage. It seems like it might be a little bit too edgy. It might not be the safest thing to go with, especially if you're in front of people. So, I mean, that's what I was like looking at was like, you could take some stuff and use it into your standup. So you're constantly crafting out material, which is like perfect if you're a comedian, because that's what you're doing at a job anyway. Like if you work a regular nine to five stacking boxes, you're still thinking about jokes. Things are still coming to you the process doesn't stop yeah entirely like any comedian working on their first 10 minutes your your first few jokes are usually about your life and your job and the current annoyances that you have in your in your day job you know and so yeah that's the way it goes that's you're plucking you pluck the jokes from your life you know? What would you what would you can say because you said you're a little bit of a storyteller what would you say your best story or joke is um uh well i don't know why well, i mean i've got uh well my most popular i guess for what since i moved to america i moved to america with a joke that i that in my opinion a story about an argument with the bank 
which I thought was ready for television and everything. Um, it was, it still is. But uh, when I first moved to America, I mean, I had performed it on TV in Sweden and England um, and maybe even Australia. So I knew it was my TV bit. Um, and I moved to America and I was unable to, to get in the public view. I still haven't been on American TV. I've been on TV everywhere in the world except for other than the Jim Jeffries show. I've been on to do desk piece on the Jim Jeffries show. Um, so it was a, a routine about a, a banking routine um, about having an argument with the bank. It's very relatable. I've had it animated since then because I because it was on my album. It was on two albums ago. So I've I had it animated by some great um, animators in the UK called Cope and Dalton. They're kind of South Parky influence. So that's up on my, uh, it's up on YouTube and, and stuff like that. If you look up JJ Whitehead banking, that was a great story. There's another story that since I moved here about uh, an awkward hotel incident, uh, which is also uh, semi popular online, but you know, you can't call it, you can't call what's gonna, what people are going to grab gravitate towards. You just got to hope they engage. How much clip and enjoy it. How much of uh, the story did you have to blemish or did you have to mock up a little bit to kind of make it a little bit funnier? I mean, like I have jokes or stories that happened in my life that like I just like I was 22 or I was 20 years old when I found out that Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson weren't the same person. I mean, that was that's a real scenario wow. that happened. But I turned that I'm not a fucking basketball guy. And I he I live in Ocean City, Maryland, and there's a giant fishing tournament that happens every year. Well, he, Michael Jordan's coming down with his boat. I forgot what he calls it. Something happens to do with the winning. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to repeat. I, I don't I, I was like, I want to ask him what it's like to be the first NBA player that had AIDS, like how difficult that was. And a bunch oh, of people God, just looked at me like that's fucking Magic Johnson. I'm like, aren't they not the same guy? It's MJ. And they're like, no, it's not the same guy. I'm like, you're telling me the guy from Space also, Jam also, doesn't have I AIDS. Have also, I hate to break it to you, but if it was Magic Johnson, that's a terrible question to lead with. I don't know. I, I would have rolled it in there. It would have been perfect. Horrible. I'm, I'm pretty sure you would have walked out of the meeting after that. That's not a. I saw hey, a full on guys, documentary that talked here. about the AIDS for like an hour and a half. I listened to it on an audio book. So I'm pretty sure that question yeah, has I, probably been asked a few times. I can already picture you being escorted from the premise yeah no uh no celebrity wants to be asked about their worst most harrowing shit but uh he overcame you know, it you i do, consider you it you. You it's, you. it's the perspective yes, i'm telling you yes he defeated aids let's get magic johnson's blood and circulate it to everybody and we'll be okay and uh no i mean you should be able to tell the difference man shame on you <laughs> Sorry about a basketball guy. I'm not that influenced into. Yeah, things. but you don't have to be a basketball guy. Michael Jordan like permeated. I uh, rarely so see any a... of anything they've ever done. I haven't even like. I just that's that's no, just me. I'm not gonna argue with you that you didn't know who Michael Jordan was, but I I mean, good for you. Good you want to talk it. 19th century Victorian surgery? I can go all day. But if you ask me about what the Chicago oh, Bulls go. are, I don't know. Okay. All right. You know now, though, right? Yes, I do know now. Okay, all right, good, good. See, it's uh, it's all about learning. It's all come on. If you right. can't learn, you, grow. You you tossed out the YouTube links to the bits. Well, what's a story, dude? I want to hear one of your things. You got me over here saying my dumbest thing. Come on, I want to hear one. Oh no, I don't want to. Oh uh, well, I don't really want to regurgitate my stand up on a 
podcast, but it's there. It's just an argument with a bank. It's a, uh, you know, you gotta, we gotta, you gotta turn out new stories on a podcast. You don't gotta want to regurgitate. Oh, I currently, Hey man, I'm killing it. I'm doing stories right now about COVID, you know, all my, are you really doing jokes about this coronavirus right now? I got a few, I've got a few, I've got a few, uh, you know, our tape, I got a, 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 a routine I'm calling tape rage. Now that's the thing too, though, any of my new stand up, I've only been able to practice in front of like, other than letting the idea evolve in your head, you, I've only been able to practice at gigs where we're social distance now, or for example, here in LA, we've got the gig going in the uh, parking lot of the magic castle. So it's about 60 cars, 60 cars parked there. Uh, lovely. It's a gorgeous setting though. They've got like, it's almost like a gazebo type stage at the end of the parking lot, which is really nice. Fairy lights. I mean, the imagery, it must be good looking from a car, uh, but still that's what it is. It's cars re parked in their, all their spots, all guided into the spots um, and sat there. Um, and then they, they, they can't honk. They're not allowed to honk their horns because it's Los Angeles and there's a city ordinance. So what they do is they hand them all uh, clackers so they got these clackers that they, you know, like the hand things. Yeah, exactly. Take a deep breath. And uh, so they got these clackers and they have to reach out their car windows when they, because their radios are tuned to the stage mic so that they can hear within their cars, even if the windows aren't down. But they do in order to, ch to cheer or applaud, um, because they can't honk their horns, they have to reach out the window with the clackers and clack that they like what's going on. That's and, terrible, uh, dude. You lose the personal it, connection of what you need to be a comedian. You feed off the laughter of stuff. I mean, it's like having a conversation and the person's like disconnected the whole time. You can tell it just gets old and you end up want to end it. But then if you're doing a comedy yeah, show, I not, mean, it's not what you want. The thing is, what I was going to say was the thing is, it's the only way it's the only way to start to learn what you're working on. So to, to your point of yes, I've got ideas in my head that are all new stand-up routines. One of them is called, one of them in my head, I call it tape rage. And it's about being angry at people who can't stand on their spot on the tape. Because there are, there's an element of people out there who think that the tape here and the tape here is the six feet that they can wander between, you know? So, and which happened to me at the post office recently, I was standing on the tape, but the person who should be standing on this tape is walking back and forth between the, because I think they think, the tape provides an invisible barrier that they can rebound behind. And then when the person says, so the tape's here, and then the, the cashier or post office clerk said next, they all they do is they walk to the other side of the tape. So technically they're going five feet, then one feet, then five feet, then one feet, while everybody else is trying to go six feet. Um, so anyway, I've been trying to exercise this joke on stage, which gets clacks. It's people are reaching out their cards, but I'm not sure if it's, uh, you know, they say clapter. You know, it's like, it's like an acknowledgement of like, ha, so you can't, a lot of us comedians, we won't know if these things are really funny until we can exercise the bits in front you're of- You're getting a pity clap. You're getting a pity clack. See, you never know. You never know if you're getting a pity clap or not. You never know if it's, but what you have to do is you have to realize we're just in a, we're just in a state of flux right now where we have to realize it's a good idea. We have to get the ideas out and try to exercise them. I mean, at every show that I've done so far, I've been- going i've been doing the first seven eight nine minutes of new material really trying I to get just, some class i and just trying to get the ideas out. but then the last the closing of our stand-up i think every comedian is doing this right now we're going to old bits we're closing on old bits
because we're just going and I do this hotel story, which I said is online as well. That's usually I do a short version of the hotel story just to close, just to get all those clacks and all those lights flashing and then say good night. But uh, you should be like, you yeah, heard of the clap. Real, this is called getting the clack. That's what you should say. Yeah, yeah. Well, we all want to get the clack right now. If you can, <laughs> if you can get the clack, oh, it's the only reward we've got. Do you think that it's going to end up going back to how it used to be before? I know the kind of the fear with the mask thing was kind of like, how would you tell if somebody's laughing or how would you tell somebody's facial emotion, which way to steer a joke is kind of the buildup and everything. But like, even when I was talking about, like, I joke around the, like the mask situation too. Like everybody's ears are going to start being pulled forward because the masks that are hanging on there, everybody's going to be walking around like this, you know, but I feel like it does create a major disconnect with a lot of entertainment stuff. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not easy you're reading, you're trying to read people's eyes, you know, uh, and sarcasm is lost on people. I did try sarcasm with a couple security guards. Uh, I think it was yesterday. I, I was talking to security. I was at, uh, oh, that's where I, I was at one of the, one of the, uh, pot shops, you know, picking up some marijuana and, uh, and the two security guards were out front and I had my mask on and uh oh yeah and i had bike there so i had my bike helmet on that's what it was i had my bike helmet on and i had my mask on and then my backpack so like and then uh, security guards are of course if you're going to go into one of these green green shops whatever they're called medicinal cannabis dispensary. stores uh, they'll what's that dispensary that's what they're called a dispensary oh there's um, yeah, so if you're going to walk into a dispensary, um, generally they'll ask you to uh, leave your bag at the door. And these um, security guards asked me to leave my bike helmet at the door as well. And I was like, oh, I had a, I had a bandana type mask and it was tied around the back of my head and the bike helmet's like underneath. And I was like, dude, dudes. And I'm trying to talk to them from under this. And I'm like, dudes, it's all interconnected. Don't make me take everything struggle. off of the bike helmet. And I'm under the mask and I'm saying things like, like with a smile on my face, like, what, what am I going to do with a helmet? How is this kind of thing? But they're not catching my tone. They, they, in the idea of, uh, sorry, man, are you getting the ding on your, I'm getting too? the whole damn caboodle. I'm feeling like you're yeah. busy. That's uh, Jim Jeffries telling me that he's getting married and, uh, which good for him. <laughs> well, tell him good congratulations. For, good for people who are in love in the quarantine. I just want to anyway. throw stones at happy couples in the park. That's all I want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, the the, uh, the tone was missing because the security guards were just getting angrier and angrier. And all I'm doing is arguing my point that it is, uh, it is pointless to take this off, but they can't see the, the smile on my face. So instead of them hearing hearing, come on, man, I'm not going to do any damage with this. They're just, they're just saying, come on, man, I'm not going to do anything with this. You know, they're you not got shot. catching the tone. So it was, uh, yeah, well, they did. I did leave it on. Once I went into the pot shop, I did leave it on, and I noticed one of them coming in to stalk me at the back. But luckily, he didn't keep up the fight. I think he saw that my point was relevant, that, you know, check my bag, but not check my helmet. Anyway, I'm sure it could have became a big issue because of the this part, because when you can't see that part, you cannot tell if somebody's being funny or sarcastic or, or witty and, and, you know, and that plus the fact everybody's just on edge anyway. So next time I walk into a bank, I'm going to wear a ski mask because you just gave me the best idea. Thank you. Yeah, there you go.
Just wear, many... keep keep wearing masks after after the pandemic's over, and then uh, and you'll be ready for crime. You know, just use it as an excuse, but you'll always be prepared. I guess. I mean, I honestly, if you think about it, how many people had that incident where they walk into a bank wearing a bandana like a bank robber? When did we just uh, uh, let that go? I feel like you have to have a proper mask instead of that one. I know. I know. Maybe the opposite of that. Maybe we're learning to trust everybody when they have masks on. Who knows, man? My banks per- aren't even open here anymore. See, look, in LA, everything's shutting down again. We're back up and we've been back up since June. Um, but like I work at a gym and that's probably one of the craziest places. It's like you literally are coming to the place complaining about everybody not following procedures, even though we've told them to. You're, you're, you're just coming to get pissed off and yell, and that's all people do. I get people every day that yeah. just come in, and they just want to sit there and yell about people not following rules. I'm like, then fucking stay home. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I feel bad. I feel bad for the angry people on either. Like, we're all going through hell. We're all going through hell, so just hold on and just try to respect other people, and let's all get through this together. And, yeah, it does make me feel a little bit – I feel sorry for people on either end of the spectrum that are either – uh, righteous mask police because that's ridiculous you know or the righteous non-mask wearing shouters that's it's just ridiculous. rule following that's I all had, it is because uh, i frequently bike i'm on my bike around la a lot you know uh last couple of days it's been very hard to breathe of course because we got a fire situation uh but frequently when i'm on my bike especially in the middle of the street i won't be wearing my mask i'm amongst cars and i'm ready to go i'm easily 10, 15 feet from any human being. Um, so my mask will be down sometimes. But yeah, a couple of times I've had, it's weird, it's almost like a video game sometimes. If you're at a red light, if I'm at a red light and I have my mask down and I'm on my bike and I'm ready, sometimes like in a, I can see them approaching or coming from 15 feet away and already going, get your mask on, get your mask. And like coming towards me, I'm like, come on, turn green, turn green. And then yeah. I'm off on my bike. So they're terrible. But then at the same time, the people who come in and I was in a 7-Eleven trying, I'm just trying to get some bananas. That's all. I just wanted some bananas. I'm in the 7-Eleven. The guy comes on, comes in and just starts screaming at people. You don't need to, you're all sheep and you don't need to be wearing masks. And I'm just there with my bananas going, dude, dude, we're all just trying to get on. Just go away. And I just go like this guy spittling at me. I don't need to be wearing a mask. And I'm looking at him thinking, well, I clearly do now with you spitting at me from, from three feet. But uh, I, I noticed it yeah, was rule following why you got upset with it because I was in a Marshalls and some dude behind me didn't have a mask on. And I was like, why do I feel the need to address this? Why do I feel the need to tell this person to put on a mask, even though I'm not like the, the, the not the police about it? But it's because he's not following your rules and then you have to. And then you're just like, OK, well, why don't I get to take mine off? And then I go to take mine off. And the woman's like, please don't. I'm like, all right. OK. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Isn't it? It's hard to contain your. Well, I love peer pressure. That's all it is. I love it. I just, it's where I grow the most. Do drugs. Okay. I mean, you said so. It sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Who knows? I just, yeah. Some sort of sanity. Let's return to that. I think it'll happen one day, Jason. Who knows? It'll be some time. But hey, promote anything you want to promote, man. I know you got some things out there that you want people to go find. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, I guess... uh, yeah, look me up. So the Twitter, bro. Whitehead. Promote the Twitter. And, uh, Twitter. Let's turn it positive again. I'm 
JJ White Snake. Yeah, send all your harassment. Um, so JJ White Snake. I've got a new album out as well. We released a couple months ago. Went to number one, um, iTunes and stuff. It's new album's quite fun. We took because it's the pandemic. It's a very pandemic themed album. So we've taken uh, a lot of my tour from last year, and we've compiled it into an album because we couldn't. I was supposed to be recording it in Asia like um, two months ago. I was supposed to do an Asian tour as as you can assume that got called off uh we were gonna record it in like kuala lumpur um and uh instead what we've done is we took uh segments of last year when i was mostly working on the material so and we've compiled it into an album uh quarantine themes so it's got like five minutes from dublin five minutes from calgary five minutes from boston uh five minutes from london um, you know, and uh, we put it all together. It's just called Live Before Lockdown. So that's a bit of fun. So yeah, if you like uh, listening to stand-up comedy, just plug my name into the magic machines. JJ Whitehead, anywhere anywhere you go, or JJ White Snake on some social media because I like to piss White Snake fans off. <laughs> well, I'll make sure I link everything in the description. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. If you want to visit iTunes or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts, rate, review, subscribe, and even share the show. Helps me out. Leave me a little something like a little message about oregano or Domino's pizza or how Papa John's is evil. Thanks for checking out Out of the Blank Podcast.